0: Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.
1: Hello, welcome to The Rest is History, and I want to start today's episode by reading um, an index entry from a book called Seasons in the Sun, The Battle for Britain, 1974 to 1979. And in the index of this book, we find Thorpe, Jeremy, 1979 election, contracts gonorrhea from Greek prostitute, plans to have his ex-lover eaten by Florida alligators, scandal, trial wades ashore from sinking hovercraft and wilson and the man who compiled that index and wrote the book dominic sandbrook is uh well he's not sitting alongside me he's in chipping norton and i'm in brixton but he's virtually sitting alongside me hello tom the jeremy thorpe scandal now this is some this is a topic that lots of our british listeners will recognized because uh Hugh Grant and Ben Whishaw were recently in a, a brilliant drama series about it a very British scandal those beyond Britain may not have the first idea what this is um so our most we've got the questions written down here our most common question from all, all non-British listeners what was the Jeremy Thorpe scandal yeah, that's a Dominic, what so, was the Jeremy Thorpe scandal? <laughs> well first
0: of all thank you so much for, I love doing those indexes so I'm glad you read that out um, and we should say, shouldn't we, Tom, that this isn't our idea for the podcast. Um, yes. This is sent in by a listener, wasn't it? By um, Paul Keeley. By Paul Keeley. So, Paul, this one is for you. And if nobody listens, it's all your fault. Um, <laughs> so what was the Jeremy Thorpe scandal? Well, that's basically what the podcast is about. So I won't give all the details away. But to cut a very long story short, Jeremy Thorpe was the leader of the Liberal Party in the 1970s. So the Liberal Party was, as a regular listener to the podcast will know, it was one of the great, the, the two great parties of of sort of British democracy in the nineteenth century, but in the twentieth century it had a pretty tough time and it declined. But under Thorpe seemed to be making a bit of a comeback. So the Liberals won almost twenty percent of the vote in. This is the seventies. Yeah, in February nineteen seventy four, and so you know you might that's say the ele-
1: that's the election where he was going around in a hover. hover-
0: no, it was in the next election, October oh, seventy four. Okay. We'll come back to the hovercraft. Yeah. So Jeremy Thorpe was the leader of the Liberal Party, and as implausible as it may seem, uh, his great sort of. Um, you know, his 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 ride to the top of British politics is interrupted by the f- fact that he's accused of conspiring to murder um, his former lover, a, a stable hand and sometime model called Norman Scott. And um, at first, people think this story is completely mad. But then when they start looking into it, they see there's a bit more to it than that. And, and as the story unfolds, it brings in all these sort of bizarre characters. So you've got a, a fruit machine dealer. You've got a carpet salesman. There's a plot, as you alluded to, to, to murder this man in in Florida and Florida and and feed him to alligators. Um, it, it sort of starts to suck in the Labour government. Um, the newspapers run it day after day after day, and it becomes this colossal kind of cause celebre in seventies Britain. It actually seems to, you know, a lot of questions are well, why did it matter? I think one one answer to that is, it seemed to reflect a general sort of comic seederness about British politics in the 70s yeah. and a sense of breakdown and so on. And, and actually, you know, it happens at the same time as Watergate or a year or two after Watergate. Yeah. But it's a much more amusing story um, than Watergate. And also, it, it does it is quite a tragic story, as you'll discover when we sort of go through it. There's a lot of sort of broken lives involved amid all the sort of, you know, the sort of carnivalesque sort of bawdy
1: farce. So, I mean, basically, we so in the past, we've, done, we've just done Adolf Hitler Yeah, Um, Mohammed. We've done The Origins of of Islam. We've done The French Revolution. Vast, sweeping themes. Here we're going up really up close to a subject that non-British listeners and even many British listeners will have never even heard of it. And yet it it is an absolutely brilliant story. And as you say, it it does kind of reveal all kinds of things about 1970s Britain, but also because it's about um, a gay affair, Yes. And this is this is kind of midpoint between homosexuality having been criminalised in the 60s when Jeremy Thorpe is an up and coming young MP and is not worried about it being criminal. I mean, he seems to have enjoyed it. He seems to have enjoyed the whiff of danger. Yeah. And of course, where we are now, where homosexuality is completely accepted. So it's also a kind of interesting temperature take on the course of that that change as well. So I think in all kinds of ways, it it, it well merits an episode. Yeah. Um, and I guess we should begin with Jeremy Thorpe himself. So, we have a question from Stephen Clark, um, who's always sending us great questions. And it says about Jeremy Thorpe, uh, the son of a Conservative MP, an old Etonian, a Trinity College man, uh, possessing an obsession with marrying Princess Margaret. How did Jeremy Thorpe end up as leader of the Liberal Party? Because he should probably have been a, a Tory, shouldn't he?
0: Well, he came from a Tory family. Um, and this is actually a really interesting story about liberalism. So, Liberalism had been the sort of governing creed of, of Britain for much of the 19th century and, and was the creed that Britain took into the First World War. And then liberalism really falls from grace. Um, and, and no ambitious politician will join the Liberal Party. I mean, you'll join the Labour Party or the Tories. But the Liberal Party kind of lives on in Britain. I mean, that's one of the interesting stories about British politics in the 20th century, that you know we now have a Liberal Democrat Party and, and the, the Liberal tradition never disappeared. And it, and it sort of survived on what you call, I mean, not being rude, but there's kind of fringes, the geographical fringes. So North Wales, Scotland, and particularly in the southwest, in Cornwall and Devon. And these are places with um, a big kind of Methodist tradition. So they're they're sort of dissenting kind of places. They're a long way from London. And serious but, places. Yeah, places. Yeah, exactly. If you're an earnest person, there's no real big trade union movement there. So you don't join the Labour Party if you're a sort of self-impro... If you're a, Self improving, um, sort of uh, working class autodidact or something, or somebody who goes to chapel and really takes it
1: seriously, you join the Liberal Party. And you wear socks for sandals is a stereotype.
0: Well, that is the stereotype that you're kind of very well meaning and you think a lot about the plight of the poor in foreign lands and that sort of thing. Now, Jeremy Thorpe is this consummate bounder. I mean, he is the bounder's <laughs> bounder. You know, he's an, he's a, he's, he's a, At Eton, his one big thing was he played the the violin. Then he goes to Oxford and he throws himself into the world of Oxford politics. He becomes president of the Oxford Law Society. He becomes president of the Oxford Union, which is a sort of classic staging post for ambitious politicians. But he doesn't get involved with the Tory party, which you would expect. He's drawn. And I I wonder whether even at this stage, there's this sort of.
1: Thorpe is incredibly flamboyant
0: and he's clearly gay. He, you know, he knows he's
1: gay, I think. Because he so, has, so there's a question from, well, it's not even a question, it's a comment from Lou Smorals. All I remember about Jeremy Thorpe was his bad taste in hats.
0: Yeah, it, so he it, wears a hat after everybody else no longer wears a hat. He wears well, a hat yeah. at a point where a hat is a sort of mark of eccentricity. Yeah. Um, and I think he went into the Liberal Party because if you were very talented, he's very funny, he's very clever, he's a, he, he's a barrister. Will he, he mimic? He's a brilliant mimic, exactly. So if you can do all those things, you know, they're there ten a penny in the Tory party, sort of posh, bounder types. Whereas if you go into the Liberal Party, where basically it's incredibly staid and downbeat, you know, you can be leader of the Liberal Party. You can become your personal vehicle. And I think there's an element of Thorpe knowing that, you know, it's almost an easy ride. He yeah. can go and join. I mean, he's all of that said, Tom, before we set Thorpe up as this kind of comic, comic
1: figure, he's also genuinely liberal he's very and he's very hostile to apartheid isn't he so he's yeah. he's a committed opponent of the apartheid regime in south africa
0: yes exactly and, and, and actually and that that's going to run through this yeah. through this whole story the south african connection so this is a, he enters british politics in the 50s really and from that point onwards you know um, being very anti racist being very anti apartheid being very kind of progressive on these kinds of issues really marks you out in politics because it's not really that usual in... Mm. I mean, there are people in the Labour Party and there are some especially not when
1: combined with a penchant for wearing hats.
0: (laughs) Not if you're flamboyant. That's the weird thing. Being flamboyant in British politics often means you're very right wing. Thorpe is not like that. He's absolutely committed to human rights and to these kinds of issues that get him big ticks from the sort of socks
1: and sandals people but he's funny. He's very funny. Here's a question. Um, would So he's committed to, hu- to human rights. To, he's anti-racist. Um, was he also committed to gay rights? And so is his homosexuality, he's, he's gay, but he's, yeah. he's flamboyantly gay at a time where it's illegal. So he's constantly skirting the edge of danger. Is, is that a purely personal thing or is he making a political point by doing no, it? No, he's not making political points at all. Right. So, right. so he, Tom, I think is really...
0: I don't want to just end up lecturing you about sort of mid-century Britain. So tell me to shut
1: up if I get too. Boring. No, no, I, I know but, um, better on this. But, um, um, and your account of it is, is so brilliant.
0: So Thorpe, Thorpe's, you know, it's a young meteor entering politics in the 50s and then the 60s at a time when people live in terror, in utter terror of being um, exposed as gay uh so there'd been a case the youngest member of the house of lords lord montague of Beauley, had been yeah as in the sent, had been sent yeah exactly had been sent to prison you know he'd been jailed for i can't remember what it was whether it was carrying on in public toilets or something but this was the classic thing that happened in the 50s you know you'd go to look for um for action as it were and then it turns out that the guy you've picked up is actually an undercover policeman and you're busted and you're taken to court you know, fourth, you know, straight away and exposed in the newspapers, and bang, your career is over.
1: But your wife stands by you and
0: then, yeah, I mean, that's the the to kind you a couple of years later. That's, that's the classic pattern. Yeah. Now, Thorpe, as a young man, clearly had this taste for kind of rough trade. You know, there's a lot of kind of picking people up in pubs and stories about picking people up in toilets or street corners and taking them back to his kind of rooms. And then in the morning, he'll give them three pounds. And off they go. And he does He does a lot of it going abroad. So he goes off to Greece, which is where he gets his gonorrhea. Right. You know, he, he and he sort of, he mutters about it to some of his friends or he hints at it among, to his confidence. But by and large, you know, you keep this kind of thing very quiet. If it comes out, it will destroy you because homosexuality is not then going to be decriminalized until the very end of the
1: 1960s. Right. So, so. When does Jeremy Thorpe meet Norman Scott, who is this stable hand, um, emotionally damaged, I think it would be fair to say, um, yeah. not, not the most balanced of boys? Does, does Thorpe meet him once homosexuality is, le- is legal? or yeah, still, no, is
0: no, no, no. Still, still illegal. So, so it's quite early. So the 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 murder, so the attempted murder, which we'll come to, doesn't happen until the mid-70s. But they meet in 1961, I think at the beginning of 1961. Oh, goodness, so that early? I hadn't realised. So it's very early. They meet actually just down the road from where I am now, at Kingham Stables near Chipping Norton. So I mean, it's literally about sort of three minutes drive from where I am in this beautiful chocolate boxy kind of village. They meet there. Thorpe has gone, I think, for a house party or something like that. And he meets this guy who's working as a stable hand. Now, at that point, the guy is called Norman Joseph. He's not called Norman Scott. The fact that he changes his name gives you some sense of the right. kind of slight chaos of his life. And he's, as you say, he's a sort of um, a damaged, kind of disturbed guy who has an ambition to, among other things, to become a male model. He meets Thorpe. You know, Thorpe obviously takes a fancy to him. And says, you know, keep in touch, and they do keep in touch. And what happens is, this guy ends up getting fired, I think, from the stables or leaving under under a cloud. And he's he 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 loses his <laughs> national insurance number. Is now, right? now, this is, or, now this is we had a couple of questions. I mean, my favourite question, probably my favourite question we've ever had through a <laughs> through a, yeah.
1: through a podcast. Crow, crowfoot. Can yeah. you get me a new national insurance card? So can you get me? Yeah. So, so this is the question that that. Norman that, Scott is always asking Jeremy Thorpe, can you get me a new national
0: insurance? <laughs> so the, yeah, so this hangs over this whole story. Um, and for, for for overseas listeners who are utterly bewildered by this, your national insurance card basically had a number on it that you needed to get a job. And you had this card, and if you had, couldn't remember your number, or I assume you... I mean, to be honest, it's not something that I fully understand the mechanics of, but you basically needed to show it to get a job so they could be registered and that they would pay the right tax and all the rest of it. So... He's left this stable under a cloud and he hasn't got his card. And he becomes obsessed with the idea that Thorpe can get him a new national, because Thorpe is an MP. So he's a big person. Anyway, Thorpe takes him home. Thorpe, they, they, they end up meeting. Thorpe takes him to his mother's house, his mother Ursula, who Thorpe has this very close relationship with. And allegedly, that's when Thorpe first kind of deflowers him.
1: Um, and anyone who has seen um, uh, the, uh, the the dramatisation of this, the recent one, will remember <laughs> the magnificent way in which Hugh Grant says, bunny. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I can't adequately do homage to the way that Hugh Grant says, bunny. No, I, I'm, I'm tempted to do it, but I don't want to become a meme. Um, <laughs> no. So, so bunnies must and will go to France?
0: Yeah. So what happens is they obviously see each other a few times. And um, Thorpe makes a series of promises to Scott, to Joseph, as he's calling himself. Sorry, he's not calling himself Scott yet. And he gives him small amounts of money. He lets him stay and so on. And um, Joseph strokes Scott, has an ambition to go to Paris, I think it is. To become a model. Yes. And Thorpe sort of says, oh, we can do that or something, but, but it kind of doesn't really mean it. And, and basically it tires of him and at some point writes him a note where he says bunnies can and will go to France or whatever he says, that's completely the wrong voice, by the way. Yes, you sound like <laughs> Churchill. I can't imagine Churchill saying that. <laughs> well, Churchill would probably say it when him proud to be British or something like that, <laughs> wouldn't he? Anyway, um, uh, he writes <laughs> this note, and 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 Joseph Strokescott keeps it, which is disastrous. He's keeping everything that Thorpe is giving
1: him, and he's uh, kept a letter in which Thorpe says that he wants to. Marry Princess Margaret or something. Have
0: I got yeah. that right? So Thorpe is very well connected. So Thorpe is so he's all well getting connected. older and
1: older. Thorpe is very
0: well connected. And at one point, um, at the beginning of the 1960s, uh, Thorpe's friend, Anthony Armstrong Jones, marries Princess Margaret. So Thorpe is very connected with these society people. And Thorpe is gutted by this. And he says, you know, to be quite frank, I'd I wanted to marry one and sleep with the other or something. And of course, you know, that's a, it's a joke, but it's kind of in the context of a society in which homosexuality is illegal. That's not a great thing for an aspiring politician to write.
1: And especially not in a letter that you're potentially that yeah. mailing right. very damaged sex exactly. lover has. right. So the so
0: time ticks by and Thorpe basically is broken. He's ditched this guy. I mean, this guy to Thorpe, I think is nothing. In the TV drama... Russell T. Davis, the 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 writer of the drama, kind of creates this very tragic and sort of set this sense that the it was a it was a kind of frustrated or doomed romance, that there was something that could have been bigger than it was. Um but I think in reality Thorpe didn't really think anything of Norman Joseph or or Scott as he became. He just he was just a passing fancy yeah. among many young men that he picked up and dropped. Um but for Norman this is this looms larger and larger in his mind, and he thinks that Jeremy Thorpe has betrayed him, and crucially that Jeremy Thorpe has stolen his national insurance card. Yes.
1: Okay, so we come back to that.
0: <laughs> yeah, so the national insurance—you you get a sense of how how sort of slightly disturbed this guy Joseph is—that the national insurance card. I mean, you, people must have been losing their national insurance cards all the all time, the time yeah. in sixties Britain. You know, I mean. The the, the the government must have been deluged by people saying, I've lost my national insurance card. Can I get a new one? Of course, it's more difficult if you keep changing your name, but he's just obsessed with this bloody card and thinks that Jeremy Thorpe is frustrating his attempts to get a new one. So this would all be nothing. This would be immaterial, were it not, for two things. Jeremy Thorpe's star is rising within the Liberal Party, but also politics itself is becoming more and more febrile in 60s Britain as sort of Britain's relative decline becomes more and more apparent. So in other words, the Liberal Party, from being this joke in the 1950s, is going to assume a bigger and bigger sort of role on the stage. And that means that Thorpe himself is going to become much more of a public figure. And that's what happens. He
1: becomes leader of the Liberal Party. So so, so Jeremy Thorpe becomes... Leader of the Liberal Party, is that before or after the decriminalization of homosexuality, which is sixty seven? Yeah, it's just before.
0: So he becomes leader of the Liberal Party in January nineteen sixty seven, but homosexuality is decriminalized, I think, a little later. Um now that's that doesn't really matter. What matters is that the the stigma is still there. And right. for people I think who've grown up, as it were, you know, people who spent so long as it were in the shadows leading illicit sex lives or lives that are perceived to be illicit i don't think just because the law has changed you know it becomes kind of hurrah i can be I mean, really it's
1: hard for maybe younger listeners to appreciate just
2: how great the stigma
1: was i mean it's yeah it, it, it's astonishing change it's astonishing it's, societal change
0: well it's probably one of the biggest in her lifetime tom i would imagine it's probably the single biggest kind of moral cultural change isn't it the yeah absolutely. the extent to which it was utterly stigmatized even when we were growing up in kind of 70s so I, when it was legal when homosexuality was was perfectly legal there was still the stigma and for somebody like thorpe you know a generation or two older that it, it must have felt almost like every day he was you know he was walking around with a kind of giant arrow over his head and that one day people are going to notice and that then that would be the end of everything. I mean, it must have been utterly terrifying.
1: So that is what makes um, Norman Scott's increasingly importunate demands on him a cause of anxiety. And these demands are becoming more and more importunate the higher that, that Thorpe rises up the Liberal Party, becomes leader, and then going into the 70s, it's a you know, period of immense political turmoil. Um, and Thorpe is a player. Yeah. He's he's not just on the periphery. He's someone who might actually end up in the government because the balance of power means that the liberals might come in and take part in the coalition.
0: So exactly. So suddenly this, I mean, no offense to kind of antiquated liberals listening, but suddenly the slight joke party from the fifties, certainly by 1974, could hold the balance of power and Thorpe, this sort of bounder who's, you know, been basically driving this rackety old vehicle. Suddenly, you know, he could have a place at the top table. And and the thing is for thorpe he's a very funny man he's a dandy he's popular he's younger than the other two party leaders ted heath and harold wilson they both look a bit kind of shop soiled to people you know they've been sort of en- endless negotiations with union leaders and you know Colin constant Lockett. yeah constantly going yeah. on the news and sort of making broadcasts to the nation with bad news that the power's going to be cut off or something yeah. and thorpe is young he's flamboyant he's, he's funny got hats. Yeah, people say well, he's a people love a man air. with a hat. They do. No, I like him. I mean, who doesn't like a man with a hat? No, nobody. So, um,
1: well, apart from uh, Lou morals but John F. Kennedy,
0: he he was the first president not to wear a hat at his inauguration. And I believe. He uh, supposedly, he he destroyed hats overnight because he he didn't want them to, to he didn't want a hat to mess up his
1: nice hair. Again, I think, think the aptly named Lou morals would have, would approve of. Yeah. Approve. So anyway.
0: Um, so Scott is all the time now badgering. Sorry, Joseph has changed his name to Scott. That's one strange, um, confusing thing. So he's all the time badgering, badgering um, uh, Thorpe for money and for, you know, why doesn't he respond to my letters? Why doesn't? And it's at that point, I think, that if the, the account of the prosecution at Thorpe's trial is to believed, it's at that point that Thorpe decides there's only one solution. Um, he's going to have to kill him. Right. And maybe okay. we should
1: take a break We should absolutely take a break. So Jeremy Thorpe, leader of the Liberal Party, the potential kingmaker in mid-70s Britain, may possibly have decided that he needs to murder his lover. Don't, Don't go away. We'll be back after the break. Hello, welcome back to the rest is history. We are talking the Jeremy Thorpe scandal. Um, when uh, when we we left you for the commercial break, um, Dominic was had set us up beautifully. Um, Dominic, Jeremy Thorpe's supposed alleged plot to um, have Norman Norman Scott done away with, and I apologise for almost laughing. There, it's a terrible thing. Uh, yeah, no, but it is. That's unlike. the weird thing about this story. It's both um, blackly comic and tragic, isn't it? Yes. Okay. Um, so so. Talk us through
0: what happens. What, what are his plans? So what's happened is at the end of the sixties, Thorpe has been, um, he, he's got a couple of sort of cronies involved in this. And he said, you know, I'm being hassled by this bloke um, who's, who won't leave me alone. He's going around. He's even, uh, Scott has even written a letter to Thorpe's mother saying, as you know, Jeremy and I have had a homosexual relationship. He seduced me and all this sort of stuff. So he's really plaguing Thorpe. And Thorpe has two cronies. One is a guy called David Holmes, um, who's a kind of liberal flunky. And the other is a, is a liberal MP called Peter Bessel, who is a very dodgy person who ends up fleeing the country for fraud um, and settling in California. And these are the two men that Thorpe decides to involve. And he says, can you basically pay Scott off? But Scott won't shut up. So he starts to have these conversations where Thorpe says, well, I think the thing to do is just to kill him. We should arrange to, to murder him. And now Thorpe says later, well, like, this was all just a joke. I mean, at one point he says, he, Bessel claims that Thorpe said it would be no no worse than s- shooting a sick dog, which given that they did, t- that dog does yes, end up dying. A dog. Yes. Yeah. Um, it seems, I think that's a detail that's probably invented. But anyway, that so there are three schemes, I think, as far as I understand it, that Thorpe suggested. One is that his friend David Holmes should disguise himself as a German businessman and then break <laughs> Scott's neck in a pub in Devon or something. Um, that was no good because Holmes had never... I mean, I don't think he'd ever have like, broken
1: someone's neck. No, I don't think he'd he ever have. a you learn the Liberal Party, no. to be fair no. to the Liberal Party, no. yeah.
0: so that's idea one. The idea two is that Holmes is going to lure Scott to the pub, poison his drink, so that he dies, and then throw his body down a mine shaft on Exmoor. Um, yeah. Holmes says that won't work because if well, he pulls, fo- <laughs> it's
1: called Holmes.
0: <laughs> Adds yeah. an extra level of weirdness yeah, does, and parody to the whole thing. Well, Holmes reasoned, quite reasonably says. How I, I, how will that work? Like, if I poison his drink in the pub, he'll die in the pub. Everybody will see. I can't smuggle his body out and throw it down a mine. So that's no, a no-go. And Thorpe says, fine, lure him to the to Florida, into the Everglades, and have him eaten by alligators. So, it's like Tom Sharp, actually, isn't it? It's it, not Carry On. It's, it's a Tom it Sharp is. novel. It is. It's exactly... see, that's the point at which you can say, Thorpe might well say, I was joking. Because... You can kind of see how that is a conversation that, with over drinks, yeah. that's kind of got out of hand. Um, so they talk about this, but nothing really happens for a while. And then I guess you get to 1974, and suddenly Thorpe is not just a rising star. Suddenly he's he's kind of in the He's on the front pages because Ted Heath, the prime minister, has called an election with with the country absolutely going to pot and the miners out on strike and the lights going out. Ted Heath calls an election to get a new mandate and it completely goes wrong. There's a hung parliament
1: and Heath that has coalition talks with Thorpe. And there's talk, isn't there, that Thorpe is going to become Home Secretary? That Thorpe would become Home Secretary and at this point. MI- so he'd be responsible for his own prosecution.
0: MI5, have a file on Thorpe, you know, an yeah. inch thick with all these, because Scott has been telling everybody. Scott has been going around London, writing letters to people and telling people and buttonholing them and saying, Jeremy Thorpe was my lover and he has betrayed me and he's got my national insurance card. Has has Edward Heath not aware of this? Um, I think, you see, most politicians think this is just completely mad. They don't believe Scott. They think Scott is making it all up. They know that Thorpe is gay, but they don't think you know that the scott stuff really amounts to anything they think it's just because at that stage it doesn't really amount to anything Tom. Yeah. i yeah. mean it's you know they it almost reflects well on them you could say they don't think this debars thought completely from you know polite society they just think well jeremy everybody knows he's got a rackety private life it's completely unfair that this guy yeah. is making his life a misery Let he who
1: is not plotted to kill his <laughs> well, they don't know at this stage. boyfriend by throwing <laughs> him to an alligator in florida cast the first stone <laughs>
0: they don't know that that stage yeah. that this has happened so February 19, March 1974, Thor has these coalition talks and they don't work out. So he doesn't go into government. Instead, Harold Wilson comes back. A Labour leader, and he becomes prime minister. Then there's a second election in October 1974. Thorpe has won 20% of the vote in February, and he's hoping for a big breakthrough in October. And his big strategy well, not his big strategy, that's an exaggeration but one of his gimmicks is he's going to hire a hovercraft and travel around the southwest
1: in this hovercraft because hovercraft get, conveys a sense of modernity, future, modernity, white heat right. technology. When Britain is,
0: is 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 Britain is in a shambles in 1974, you got IRA bombs going off in yeah. public. Inflation is through the roof. Trade unions out on strike. If you've got a hovercraft, that shows you own the future. It's kind of Doctor Who, it, yes, exactly. You're, you're, you're future.
1: And the future, and the hovercraft breaks down. It does. <laughs>
0: <laughs> British-made hovercraft, or something. So it so breaks down, and Thorpe has to wade ashore in the eyes of the press. And his campaign kind of goes similarly. You know, people have had their fun kind of voting for the Liberals earlier in the year, but now it becomes a much more of a choice. I think um, between Labour and the Tories. The Liberal vote dips. And there's a sort of sense of a deflated balloon. And it's round about this point that, I mean, I'm not entirely... I don't think anyone is entirely sure of the precise chronology because, of course, it's disputed. But it's about this point that basically they press go on the murder plan. Um, And not surprisingly because Thorpe thinks I've got it all to lose now. You know, I'm in the big league and I can't have Scott hanging around. We've just got to get rid of him. So it's at that point that... And I've actually made a chart to remind myself because it's so...
1: This, I think, this is a first. I think, well, you know, we've done all these topics. And I don't think we've ever had a chart before. No. So I've got um, listeners. Uh, this is a first, Dominic. So, is unveiling the first, the rest is history. Chart. So, so what happens? Thorpe gets. He says to
0: Holmes, his maze the aptly named Holmes. He says, "You have to sort this out now. You have to kill Norman Scott. He's still pestering me with his letters, his bloody National Insurance demands, and I want to be Prime Minister." So Holmes, he's never arranged a hit in his life. He's never arranged anything even vaguely approaching i mean which of us has uh so he enlists the help of a sec- of a carpet salesman from south wales who he knows i don't know if the world of selling carpets is particularly violent in the 70s <laughs> but this guy is called john le Mesura. okay which to anyone he's anyone british who's yeah. watched dad's army in
1: yeah, which the actor He's, John Mesurier plays Sergeant Wilson. He is, who was
0: one of the big but it's stars a small him. screen in the British small screen in the seventies. But it's not But him. it's not him. It's somebody Denial. else. Well, with the same very uncommon name. John Le um says, Well, he doesn't know anything about arranging murders, but he knows a man who might, who's a man called George Deacon, who supplies fruit machines to pubs and hotels. So, you know, slot machines basically. Mm-hmm. Now the slot machine world was actually, you know, not no place for kind of shrinking violence. There was a lot of corruption, and it was there were slightly shady elements to the slot machine world. So this is not entirely ridiculous. So now we've gone a few stages away from Thorpe Deacon. I think he approaches him in the pub or something. He he then finds a prospective hitman. This man is a man called Andrew or Gino, as he called himself, Gino Newton. Newton. He's not an ideal assassin because he's never shot anybody. And he's actually an airline pilot. But basically, he says, I'll do it. You know, I'll do it. Um, and they say they'll pay him £10,000, I think it is, which is a lot of money. His salary as an
1: airline pilot, £6,000,
0: right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that tells you how much money he's being offered. So later on, they said, oh, we never paid him to shoot him. We just paid him to blackmail him. But as he pointed out, you wouldn't give me that much money if it was just for blackmail him. And you're giving me more than my salary as an airline pilot. And airline pilots are well paid. So... So he's going to do it. I mean, God knows why he said yes. Maybe just needed the money. I'll, I mean, he says, I'll, I'll kill Norman Scott for you. So in the autumn of 1975, he goes off to um, uh, sort of Devon, Somerset, sort of borderlands. Exmoor. Minehead. Yeah, Minehead, exactly. And um, he meets Norman Scott. And you know what his story is to lure Norman Scott now. out? He says, um, somebody's trying to kill you. I'll protect you. <laughs> brilliant. I mean, it's very unimaginative. Very subtle. <laughs> yeah, to say somebody, there's another hitman. Yeah. <laughs> Weirdly, Scott kind of goes along with it and at one point Newton says to him, well listen, let's go for a drive. I mean, at that, that point... But isn't
1: that the odd thing, that Norman Scott is a paranoid fantasist whose yeah. worst paranoid fantasies actually turn out to be true.
0: <laughs> yeah, but also doesn't seem to... A paranoid fantasy fantasist who doesn't recognise when the hitman, uh, hitman finally pitches up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... Newton says, I'll take you on the drive, and it's from a place called Coomartin to a place called Porlock, so it's kind of over Exmoor. And and Newton is thrown at the outset of the journey because Scott has brought his dog with him, who's this Great Dane called Rinker. They set off, and, and Newton is really nervous. I mean, you'd be nervous anyway. You're going to kill yeah. somebody, and you've never done it. He's got an antique Mauser pistol, a German kind of wartime pistol. Or something. And he's
1: allergic to dogs or something. He's afraid He, of he hates, has a horror
0: of dogs. Yes. <laughs> so Scott has brought this dog, and... Newton is... You can imagine driving the car over the bloody moorland. It's pitch black, probably yeah. raining. and under the Baskervilles. There's this kind of <laughs> dog. Yeah. There's this dog. And you know you've got to kill this guy and probably the dog as well. And you've never shot... A, you know, you've never killed anyone before in your life. He gets halfway and he sort of panics or something. Or there's some talk about swapping drivers and they pull over. The dog assumes when they pull over that it's time to go for a walk and leaps out <laughs> of the car. <laughs> So Scott gets out after the dog, and Newton, the hitman, he gets out as well, and he thinks, "Christ, I've got to do something." So he just shoots the dog, (laughs) kills the dog. I mean, that's the the tragedy of the whole story. The dog is the real loser. Um, Yeah. Scott says, "Oh my God, you've shot my dog! What are you doing? What are you doing?" Newton. I mean, this is an incredible detail now, Tom. He points the gun, he puts it to Scott's head, and pulls the trigger, and nothing happens. The gun jams. So Newton then just gets back in the car and drives what? off, which is, which is ludicrous. But I mean, at least try to batter him to death or something. Don't leave him there with the dead dog. That's what he does. So Scott has, you know, he's just been taken for a lift by this bloke, he's shot his dog and then driven off into the, into the mist. And he comes to the only obvious conclusion. This has been arranged by Jeremy Thorpe, which it, which it has. <laughs> or has it? Well, why is that? this is the. And then he goes around for the next few months basically making court appearances and telling everyone who will listen, I have been, you know, Jeremy Thorpe has tried to assassinate me.
1: But presumably it sounds so mad that nobody believes him.
0: Nobody believes it at
1: all. Well. Well, so how does it come? At, how does it come? I mean, how do people end up starting to believe him? Um,
0: so just on nobody believing him. The government know about it. Harold Wilson knows about it. But Harold Wilson thinks he's being,
1: thought, he's being framed by the South African
0: Intelligence Service, who are called BOSS.
1: Yes, okay. So we've got a question from Andrew Harrison. Were BOSS really involved? So this is the really weird aspect to this story. In the 1970s, everything
0: everything had gone wrong for Britain. And so there was this sort of general sense, weirdly, particularly among the people who should have known better, the top of the sort of governments and stuff, that this must be because of be because of evil conspiracies by sort of shadowy intelligence agents and stuff. So Harold Wilson, who is the Labour prime minister, who we saw coming back to power in 1974, everything is going wrong for him. And he thinks he has been plotted against by MI5 and also by the South African um, secret service boss. I mean, who would call, what you, why would you call your secret service boss? It's, it's almost as good as Spectre. Yes. Yeah, it's, like, it's the Bureau of state security, but, but even so, I mean, what a name anyway. He thinks Boss is plotting against him. And so Harold Wilson is saying to his cabinet ministers, you're hearing all these rumours about Thorpe. They're all created by Boss. Boss are involved with this. And Boss do, in fact, know about it. They hate Thorpe because he's been campaigning against apartheid. Mm. But they haven't created this story. They've just sort of picked it up and are delighted by it and hoping to use it against him. So the way it it starts to look more... um, uh, the, The way people start to believe the Thorpe story is that Scott starts to give his letters to the newspapers. He's got this cache of letters, you see. That's the, one of the big things that he's got the letters that show that he and Thorpe did have a relationship. But also, Thorpe's old crony, Peter Bessel, who's moved to California, he starts talking to the newspapers as well. So now you've got a feeding frenzy, a Fleet Street feeding frenzy, as the newspapers are competing for ever more lurid allegations. And one of the things that makes this story very hard to assess is we don't know and we'll never know. How much some of these anecdotes have been concocted to sell, you know, by the people telling them to sell papers. For example, the line, it's no better than shooting a sick dog. Yeah. I think Bessel made that up because it was such a great line and he could, you know, the the telegraph or the mail or whoever
1: it was would run with them. But I mean, it's a kind of intriguing reminder of the pre internet era that it takes this long to spill out. Yeah, yes. Now it would all be out in in a couple of hours, wouldn't it?
0: Yes, yeah, so it does take a very, you're right, it takes a, a very long time. Um, so the, the the sort of attempted murder is the autumn of 1975, but then it's not till May 1976 that Thorpe steps down as leader of the Liberal Party because the Sunday Times had printed some of his letters to Norman Scott. And then the case rumbles on for a few more years and there's kind of revelation after revelation, this slow drip, drip, drip um, in the newspapers. And and the other thing that we I should have mentioned is that one of the key people in pushing the story, who's another great character who actually didn't really appear so much, I think, in a very uh, English scandal, is the satirist Auberon War. So he's Evelyn Waugh's son, the son of the Brideshead revisited novelist.
1: He lives down in the West Country, doesn't he?
0: He lives in the West Country. He knows of Thorpe. And he writes a diary for Private Eye magazine <laughs> in which he makes stuff up. So he writes this incredibly reactionary diary in which he sort of says... Um, I went to dinner with Princess Margaret last night and we agreed that all strikers should be shot on sight or something of this kind. Yeah, yeah. Um, but in the course of his diary of the 70s, he has a real vendetta against Thorpe. I mean, he just calls it himself a vendetta. He says Thorpe is a hypocrite and a liar. He has disgusting and revolting personal habits. And he's particularly upset about the killing of Rinker. Yeah. So when he hears about the dog, he says, this just confirms everything I've ever suspected about
1: Thorpe. Thorpe is a dog murderer. He, and um, really, I mean, in England, there could be no worse accusation than a dog that's murderer. The, thing. the killing of the dog,
0: rather than if it was Scott who was murdered, it wouldn't be such a good story. No, it's a better story because it's the dog, Rinka, the innocent dog, who is who is killed. So before all this time, the the sort of um, Crown Prosecution Service or whatever they they were in the seventies are uh, sort of amassing information. They decide they are going to charge Thorpe. Um, Holmes, uh, the the fruit machine man, uh, George Deakin, the carpet salesman, LeMessurier, the airline pilot, Newton, they're going to charge them all with conspiracy to murder. But that doesn't happen until after the next general election, the 1979 general election. So that gives Auburn War, the satirist, the chance to stand against Thorpe. Running for the dog party.
1: Yeah, the dog lovers party. Dog lovers party with its slogan, um, a better deal. For your dog. A better deal for your dog. And then, so his
0: election manifesto was suppressed by law because it was regarded, it was, it, the judge said it would be prejudicial to the trial because Auburn War was campaigning for dogs and against Thorpe. He said dogs had had a very bad deal in Britain. Thorpe had been going around killing them. And, um, yeah. and the judge wouldn't let him public. So he won 79 <laughs> votes,
1: uh, War. And Thorpe, Thorpe loses, doesn't he? But actually by a surprisingly small amount, considering... Yeah, there's tons of
0: support for Thorpe in his local manner, as it were. And so mean... On
1: the theme of, of um, changing attitudes to homosexuality, lots of voters don't seem to have worried about that at all. So... Well, Thorpe is married. Thorpe has been twice married. Um, so a
0: lot of people, I think, did, just didn't believe it. And it's that weird thing, Tom, where I think a lot of voters had formed an attachment to Thorpe. And they just simply refused to believe that he could have been guilty of any of the things that he was accused of.
1: But he loses. Yeah, but he does lose. He loses. Yeah. And then after the election, which sees Mrs. Thatcher come to power, um, Thorpe comes to trial with the three other conspirators in yeah. the High Court. Yes, right. In the Old Bailey. In the Old um, Bailey. Yeah. And, okay, so so, so because this is, this is another aspect of Britain that has vanished completely is the tradition of the, the comically reactionary out of touch judge. Yeah, Lord Justice
0: Cantley was it? Lord Justice yes, Cantley. Yeah. Just, yes. Um. Who
1: who basically presides over the case and his summing up is is, is so weighted in Thorpe's favour that Thorpe gets acquitted. Yeah, have you got it there, Tom? I, I I haven't, but famously it then gets parodied by Peter Cook, who's the I mean, he's basically, he's the guy who funds Private Eye. Yeah. He's part of, of um, Dudley Moore and, and Peter Cook. He was part of the Beyond the Fringe, uh, kind of the, 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 the great genius of British comedy. And he does this kind of almost pitch-perfect parody. Well, Canley British- had described Scott. <laughs> he said in his, his,
0: his, summing up, he'd said, Mr Thorpe, public servant of many years standing, Scott scrounger, parasite, hypocrite, homosexual. And sort of, you know, he completely loaded the... And yeah, as you say, Peter Cook does this absolutely brilliantly. Self-confessed player of the pink oboe, is the famous phrase. Yeah, I mean, basically what he does is... The reason that's so good is that he basically intersperses with what
1: Cantley genuinely said. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's... Maybe that's one of the reasons why... Maybe it's just middle age that British comedy doesn't seem quite as funny these days, it's because judges aren't as funny. Yeah, um, there's nothing to kick against. Establishment figures aren't as funny, because back then the establishment really was the establishment, and you could yeah. laugh at it, whereas now the establishment is all down with the kids. So they're not as yes. instantly amusing. Um, anyway, so great for, for Jeremy Thorpe. He gets acquitted, but his, his career...
0: His career is just... I mean, he had to be acquitted, I think, Tom, because the prosecution case almost necessarily was quite flimsy. It's all based on hearsay. And okay, people... so here's
1: a question for you from Jonathan Metzer. The jury acquitted on beyond reasonable doubt test, but looking at all the evidence available and then then and now, was Thorpe probably guilty or innocent? What do you think?
0: Well I think the jury had to acquit because the one okay, detail well, that's I'd not the que- that's not the question. No, I'll so, just say okay. one thing
1: though. They the the
0: the the witnesses, the key prosecution witnesses, it turned out that they would they under their deals with the newspapers, they were due to get more money if <laughs> Thorpe went down. So
1: I mean okay. that obviously looks very okay, So they yeah, so they were always Okay, but, but that's not quite quite the, the the question. So he maybe he had to be acquitted because there wasn't the evidence, or because people had been you know tampering with the witnesses or whatever. But do you think that Thorpe did sponsor an attempt to kill Norman Scott?
0: Yes, I do. I think um, he might not have really meant it, but the, I tell you what's really what's the damning thing, Tom, which we haven't mentioned at all, and this is a chance for me to um, drop a, a favorite um, fact in Thorpe. It's the fact that he gets the money. So he he gets the money. He raises the money from a man called Sir Jack Haywood, who's a British billionaire, a British millionaire who's based in the Bahamas, but a, a donor to the Liberal Party. Now, some listeners, who's the chairman the, of the Better, he? he becomes the owner of Wolverhampton Wanderers yeah, in the nineteen nineties. Exactly. So Jack Haywood gives him this money, basically no questions asked. And Thorpe doesn't give it to the Liberal Party funds. He keeps it in a separate account. And it, it, as often in these cases, you follow the money. The reason he needs that money. Is because that money is destined for Andrew Newson, the, the hitman, and I think that's the really okay, so dodgy that's the thing. That's gun. the smoking gun. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And I think actually, Tom, you know, you can understand why Thorpe. I mean, you can think Thorpe feels trapped. He's got this liaison in his past that he feels he, he can never rid himself of that fear of being exposed for his sexuality. Yeah, and he feels he has to do something. And whether he said it first as a joke or whether he really meant it. I, I, I think when it's happening, at so many removes, it probably never really seemed real to him. Oh, just get rid of him.
1: I I was 11, I think. Uh, yeah, I was 11. And I had a vague sense of what was going on. And I wasn't entirely sure what Jeremy Thorpe exactly was supposed to have done. But I kind of vaguely knew that it was, it was something bad. And we have um, a comment here from uh, Tony McGowan, um, opening batsman in the authors. Um, A little bit older than me, I should say. I hope you'll be mentioning the terrible jokes that went around every school in the wake of the scandal, e.g. what happened when Jeremy Thorpe found Norman Scott stowing away on his yacht. He made him work his passage. So so there was there was the, the trial kind of provided grist for schoolboy jokes like that. And there was a kind of, you know, the tradition of British smut of innuendo of. Anti gay jokes. I mean, this, yeah, it, it kind of powered that particular mill. And then there's a very, very interesting, got a very interesting comment from Pat Roberts. I first heard the word homosexual with regard to Thorpe. I was about nine. The word bimbo with regard to Gary Hart and about a sexual practice I won't mention with regard to Bill Clinton. Do political scandals give permission to the respectable media to talk dirty? So it, it, it basically gives permission to, to school children and to the media yeah, to deal absolutely. in kind of smutty subjects that otherwise perhaps back in the, the late 70s people were more restrained in talking about them perhaps than would be now.
0: I think the good example of that is the very existence of the News of the World newspaper, now defunct, which in the sort of 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, um, at the weekend, on Sundays, the News of the World always had stories about flandering vicars or, you know, people caught in compromising situations. And you're right, it's, an, it's a kind of prurience to it, but it was always an excuse to tell sort of titillating stories and stories about wrongdoing. And I think thought, the Thorpe scandal was the consummate example of that. But also... It's so, I think it really, why it really matters is because in the 1970s, there was a sense of decrepitude in British politics, and a sense of establishment seediness. And this was precise. I mean, the big winner was Margaret Thatcher. You know, unimpeachable private life, a woman, uh, oh. breath of, you know, sort of projected herself. It's the same as thing as new... with
1: the Perfume scandal in the, the early 60s. Yeah, exactly. Put paid to the Macmillan government, gave it the kind of aura of... of... Shabbiness and decrepitude. Exactly. And Thorpe is a consensus politician. He's a politician
0: of that post war sort of slightly social democratic consensus. And that's what Margaret Thatcher in 1979, the year that he's tried, that's what she says she wants to smash. And it's very telling. You know, the Tories had lost in 1974 because so many of their voters, something like two million of their voters had defected to the Liberals. Those voters return in the year of the Thorpe trial to Margaret Thatcher. And they give her the the impetus that she needs to go and sort of change everything in the nineteen eighties. I,
1: I mean, I thought what what Hugh Grant's portrayal of of Jeremy thought powerfully conveyed was the charm and the wit and yeah. the, the the kind of debonair qualities. And there's um. <laughs> Ian Jones has given a transcript of an interview between Robin Day, the great inquisitor of the 70s and 80s, interviewing Thorpe on losing his North Devon seat at the 1979 general election. Robin Day, Mr Thorpe, do you think your prosecution for conspiracy to murder was a factor in your defeat? To which Thorpe replies, put it like this, Robin, I don't think it helped. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, Thorpe was
1: really funny. I mean, yeah, Thorpe would do a, a thing... Kind of obviously a very charismatic man. Thorpe would do a um, thing that
0: you never see on political panel shows. So he would appear on a panel show... And, and then he would impersonate the other, the other yeah. people. Yeah, we don't what? have enough
1: politicians doing that.
0: No, politicians don't do enough impersonations.
1: <laughs> okay. So, um, I mean, I think that, 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 that basically covers it because it didn't really have a, a, an enduring influence, an enduring impact. I mean, it's a kind of interesting waymark, Mark. As you say, it, it, it kind of signals the end of a particular period in in. British politics and the beginning of a new one. It's also, as we said, an interesting waymark in the kind of evolution of attitudes to, to homosexuality. Um and of course, uh, it it's the most famous assassination of a dog in British history. We had
0: a lot of and questions about dogs, Tom. We did.
1: And since this was Ian Keeley's idea that we did. Paul do, I think we should yeah, Paul Keeley, sorry. I think we should end with a question that he's he's asked. And has the assassination of a dog, in this case, poor old Rinker? never had such reverberations in public life. Um, I, haven't, I haven't made a special study of dogs. When I got that question, I threw my hands up and put it out. And we've had a number of, of excellent replies. So we've had one from um, Dunlick, Teminck, who suggests Gellert. Uh, and that's a great story of um, Gellert was the hound of Llewellyn the Great um, in wow. Wales, who came back to find his, his child's cradle had been um, turned over. Um, The baby itself was had vanished, and there was Gellert, his dog, with blood kind of dripping from its chops. And so Llewellyn assumes that Gellert has has killed the baby. Um, He kills the hound. The the, the hound gives a kind of faithful, trusting yowl, and then keels over. And Llewellyn goes next door and finds the baby well and alive, and a dead wolf that Gellert has killed. Wow, that's a good story. That's a great story. Um, That's a good story. Then Chris Hind, Lincoln's dog. Lincoln's dog was called Fido. It survived the assassination of Lincoln himself. Very boring, and yeah, then Lincoln's he got assassinated by a drunk shortly after Lincoln's funeral. Assassinated?
0: Can you assassinate?
1: Yes, of course. If it's Lincoln's dog, you can assassinate. Yes. Wow. Um, Dave Walters, the story, I think, actually, which we've, which we've touched on before, stray dog did cause a war. The War of the Stray Dog was a Greek-Bulgarian crisis in 1925, which resulted in a brief invasion of Bulgaria by Greece near the border town of Petrich after the killing of a Greek captain chasing the dog and a sentry by Bulgarian soldiers. And then we have Paul Dubs, Sir Richard Sharples was assassinated in 1973 in Bermuda along with his ADC, Hugh Sayers, and his dog, Horster. So there are some famous dogs. I, have, I, I, I think we history. should end...
0: I, I've, I don't know about dead dogs, but I know about a lost dog that was important. That's both a nod back to a previous podcast and anticipating a future podcast. So um, the late Adolf Hitler had mm-hmm. a dog when he was in the trenches in the First World War. And um, when... Yeah, He he was friendlier with the dog than with any of the fellows in his sort of platoon or whatever. And he became very close to this dog. And eventually they were told to move down the line. And he the dog had gone off for a walk or something and Hitler couldn't find it. And they moved out and he never saw the dog again. And his comrades said they never saw him as upset as he was after the loss of that dog. Now, the reason I say it's a, a nod to a future podcast is when I was writing my children's history of the Second World War, in the first chapter I introduced Hitler as a character. And I had this stuff about Hitler and the dog, and i have written it in a very tear-jerking way. And at this point, I hadn't—I don't think I'd said that the Hitler was going to be the baddie or something. And my son read it, and when he saw the stuff about the dog, I mean, he didn't care about the deaths of all these people in the First World War, but when he read about the dog going missing, you know, his sort of lip quivered. And then he said to me, "Is the person with the dog Hitler?" And I said, "Yeah, it is." And and he was said, "Oh well, you can't have the dog because any child reading this book will think that the lost dog that must be the hero." Yeah. And um, so I had so to you take did, the dog out. You got I had to out. cut it. I had to cut it completely
1: because no villain would ever have a dog in a children's book. It's interesting. I mean, so, so we, we're going to be um, uh, recording an episode next week uh, on children's history. Um, yeah. and, and I think, you know, we, we've, we've been talking about dogs. We've been talking about children's history. Um, and we've also been talking about the contribution of our listeners. And I'd like to just fade out by a, a wonderful conversation that our Magna Carta episode inspired so we we had some criticism from dano about that a bit of a rant after listening to the magna carta episode of the rest of history the other day feel free to argue with me i will not defend john he was a bad king and by the sound of it a bad person but and so dano goes on with his thread yeah but we then have a comment from goli x who says what about the fact that his chief advisor was a snake to which dano you know huge credit to dano he says okay that i will grant you is a bad look yeah and i think that that's that's the measure of, our, of the people who are listening to us, is that they can disagree, yeah. but they do it amicably. Yeah.
0: If you don't believe King John's advisor was a snake, just Google it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think on that note, um, Dominic, thank you for uh, a tour de force, uh, a thank brilliant you, explication Tom. of um, the Jeremy Thorpe scandal. Thank uh, you to I, Paul, Paul Keely for suggesting it. Yeah, for coming up with it. And I hope that our... Um, Those listeners who'd never heard of the Jeremy Thorpe scandal will feel that it was well worth doing an episode on. So uh, we will speak to you soon. Uh, Thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.